Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Andy Rowe Show. Matt Fraser was crowned the fittest man on the planet five years in a row. You're going to get a behind-the-scenes look at how he did it. From breaking his back to spewing in rubbish bins, this is a raw insight into the compelling story of a sport's most successful and greatest ever competitor. I hope you enjoy the episode. Before we get into this week's episode, a massive thank you to Manscaped for supporting us this week. And now I feel comfortable shaving my lads, even while I'm talking to you. I'm not actually, I just thought it'd sound more authentic if I used the razor and had it on in the background. And thanks to you guys, Manscaped are also offering us an exclusive 20% off and free worldwide shipping. Just use the code ARS20 when you visit manscaped.com. That's free shipping anywhere in the world, doesn't matter where you are, and 20% off. It's a pretty good deal. Thanks, Manscaped. Matt Fraser, thanks for coming on the show, mate. Thank you for having me. No worries. Well, you've done all right for a partially deaf fat kid from school, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah, it's been uh, had a good run so far, trying to keep the ball rolling, trying to keep it keep it going. You've got a hearing impairment. Did that kind of held you back in team sports, didn't it, growing up? Yeah, you know, like it was never really diagnosed. You know, growing up, it was just constant ear infections. When I was when I was a newborn, my parents found out that I was incredibly hard of hearing, and I didn't really realize it until much much later on. You know, I thought it was normal not being able to hear people clearly if there was any background noise or anything. Just recently, I actually got a hearing aid. So that's been helpful. But yeah, you know, it just kind of, I think in a way, indirectly, it kind of made me a little bit more independent. You know, my I was uh, really, really hard of sight. And then on top of it, hard of hearing. And and so communicating with people across a sports field wasn't, wasn't fantastic. So I think it kind of, without me realizing guided me more to like the ind- independent individual sport so ended up working out it's good now but yeah I never I never want people to think like when I say like oh I'm blind you know it's yeah. just exaggerating I'm just very my sight is shit um <laughs> or it was before I got surgery and then when I say like oh I'm deaf yeah like I'm basically basically deaf out of one ear and then the other one's just not great to the point that like I recently went and got a hearing aid because now I'm not competing and sweating for eight hours a day so it's not as inconvenient having it in your um so that's kind of what guided you into the more independent one as you said so and you got into weightlifting initially at school didn't you yeah yeah you know started olympic weightlifting when i was about 12 years old you know i was i was heavier set and i kind of i just got tired of being the heavier kid that kind of got picked on a little bit so after school i would walk from the middle school to the high school and they they allowed anyone into the weight room for a couple hours after school and started doing that. And then one of the coaches saw buddy and I just seeing who could lift the most weight over their head. And, you know, I think we had 85 pounds on the bar, like not, not much weight. And we are struggling, like God awful technique, no technique at all. just trying to grunt it up. And my dad came in to pick me up to drive me home. And 
one of the coaches kind of pulled him aside and was like, Hey, your kid seems to have an interest in this. There's actually a guy in the next town over that coaches it. And he's really, really good. You should take your kid over there if he wants to pursue this and went over there and coach Polakowski, he was a elementary and middle school PE teacher and he ran a weight room and every day after school and Saturday mornings free of charge, he just wanted to give kids an outlet and provide the knowledge if, if they had the interest. So there was never a fee. There was never a sign up membership, nothing. It was all are welcome. And so I got into that and, you know, that consumed me probably until for, for about 10 years, that was my primary sport through middle school, high school, got scouted to go live at the Olympic training center, lived in Colorado Springs doing that for two years. I'm a big fan of not having to rely on other people. And so, you know, it was, you want to do well in a sport like that. Like when you go on stage, it's just you, like your coach isn't there helping you on stage directly. You're not dependent on teammates. So most of the time your effort is directly related to your results. It's not dependent on like, because your teammate went out partying last night and now they have a bad performance and it affects everyone. The pressure's on me. It's yeah. not dependent on anyone else. It's just on me. You've got all the accountability. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and at, at times it's terrifying. It's not convenient to have that pressure on you all the time, but you know, that that's how I, I really operate well. And so then once my weightlifting career was done and I found CrossFit, you know, I found like, oh, basically the same thing. You know, it's, it's all on me. I'm out there by myself. So, you know, I really like that, that balance between the two of like, all right, like all the pressure's on you, but then you're only dependent on yourself. We'll get into your CrossFit in a minute. I just want to talk a little bit more about the, um, the weightlifting because your coach is, is quite, a, it's quite interesting because later on, it's quite evident how you learn how to break things down and break your every sort of aspect of your performance and technique down mm-hmm. and, and and you you learned that really early on in weightlifting with broomsticks right a, a little bit yes you know understanding the value or seeing the benefit of building the proper foundation and seeing how that plays out years down the road and not just by next week i learned that value from weightlifting of when, when, when you're 12 years old and your coach is having you lift on a broomstick, you know, you, you hate it. And you look at him like, why are you doing this to me? Yeah. And so it was, it was really tough. Like my coach's role for years and years was pulling back on the reins because if, if you leave a 12, 12 to 16 year old boy unattended in the gym, he's going to max out every day. He tried to preach it as much as he can of, this technique, like learning, this will pay off down the road. It will pay off down the road. And you know, when you're that age, it falls on deaf ears, but then years and years down the road, once I started seeing like, Oh, all these kids that were beating me when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, they're stagnant. They don't have that good foundation to keep building off of. They don't have the technique to fall back on. They don't have that coordination, that timing, all that stuff. So I learned that lesson. So when I switched over to CrossFit, I knew the benefit of not taking that dose of instant gratification. Like let's Mm -hmm. take the time, take a step backwards, take two steps forward in terms of the, the, the one place that I almost fell short was I didn't know how to break down those movements into these little tiny incremental steps that I can pursue every day. So, you know, I got, got that dose of knowing the benefit of technique, but I didn't know how to break it down. Like, so my biggest downfall 
with weightlifting was I just wasn't strong enough. All the kids I was out lifting were stronger than me, but I didn't know how to build that individual strength in certain body parts to kind of bridge the gap in my weaknesses. So that, that came later in CrossFit when, and you know, it's, it's all from trial and error. Like I didn't start doing something the first day and go, Oh, I got this figured out. It, you learn lessons from fucking up. Yeah. So, you know, you have a, enough, enough wax over the head of like, Hey, oh, you did that wrong. And now you're paying the consequence to being able to really look at something objectively and break it down into these tiny, tiny little pieces and just constantly asking why, 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 you know, it's like, Oh, I'm not good at ring muscle ups. All right. Why? It doesn't just end up, I'm not good at them because if that's it, the easy solution is, well, let's just start doing a ton of them. But all right, well, what part of the muscle up? Why is that part? Like, is it a actual muscle group? Is it a stimulus? Is it the technique? Is it what part of it? And then break it down more and more and more until you come down to this tiny atom size piece. And it's like, all right, I'm going to work on that. And then I'm going to retest it and then find the new weak point. And then, so it's basically just always finding the bottleneck in your performance, expanding that bottleneck. And as soon as you remove that bottleneck, now there's another one and now there's another one. And so it's just taking those problems one, one step at a time and always, always looking at all right, where do I want to be years from now? And not just where do I want to be right now? Like early on in my career, so anyone listening that doesn't know, in 2014, my rookie year, I got uh, second place at the CrossFit Games, which is like the big competition for the year. And then in 2015, I got second place again. And and I remember early on, I was like, I was ecstatic about 2014 getting second place. I'm like, rookie year, got on the podium. This is phenomenal. And then 2015, it was a catastrophic failure. I looked at it as an absolute failure. That's crazy, eh? I remember openly talking about like, that 2015 medal, I, I hate that medal. I hate looking at it. I hate seeing it. I hate what it represents. Now I look back at it and I love it. Really? I'm so thankful that I got second place that year. So going into the 2015 season, I was like, I got first, I got second place. First place is retiring. And I can, I just doubled down on what I was already doing. I had expectations of winning, but then obviously that didn't happen. But I look at if I had one in 2015, I would have been rewarded for my poor behavior. I like I, I wasn't eating well. I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't training consistently. Like my priorities were all over the place. And so I'm like, if I had one in 2015, I would have thought, oh, that's the formula to get the results I wanted. And I would have kept doing them. I would have kept staying up late, training late at night, eating shit food, being in unhealthy relationships, all these things. So now that I'm far enough removed, I look at, oh, it's because of that 2015 medal that I got my shit together, that I changed all these things. I stopped cutting corners. It was the kick in the ass that I needed to be like, hey, what you're doing isn't good enough. Like you're not putting in the full effort that you should be. And then it was because of that, that I did everything to the best of my abilities. There was no sacrifices. I didn't want to leave anything up to what if. And then my immediate next results was winning the CrossFit games by the largest margin of victory ever. And then I went, oh, I like these results. And I looked at what I did in the year past. I go, okay, doing all these things led to the biggest margin of victory ever. So I did it again. And I won by an even bigger margin of victory. Did it again, won by an even bigger one. And then in my final year, I 
broke that record one last time. So like, it's just funny, like the perspective years ago, I hated that 2015 medal. Now I look at, it, I'm like, Oh, it's because of that medal that I had the career that I had. What did that commitment look like as far as like when people say, oh yeah, I went back and I trained harder and I did this and I was doing this wrong and what does your day look like? What does your week look like? When you're looking at CrossFit games, which I didn't realize was so massive, I've heard of CrossFit before I started researching you and started researching this, I didn't realize the CrossFit games was such a massive deal. Like, Yeah, it's a a big, big ordeal, yeah. I remember one of the seasons that I, I did uh, I think the opening stage for qualifying for the CrossFit Games uh, had over 400,000 people start. So the first stage of competition starts with 400,000 people. And then by the final stage, you're down to the top 40 men, 40 women. It dwindles down pretty quickly. Yeah. And then for anyone that doesn't know, like the CrossFit Games, they're anywhere from four to five days, usually give or take 14 to 15 events. We know some of them. Some of the events ahead of time, we find out, like we've had one that we found out the event as we were doing it. Anywhere from one rep max, where so you're basically performing for three seconds, to we've done like three hour, three and a half hour events. The marathon row, that's mental. You guys had to row f- at the length of a marathon on a, on a, on a, on a Con- concept two nice. rower, uh, 42,195 meters. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, I think the top time was like two hours and 40 minutes. And I think, I think everyone finished up by the three and a half hour mark. That one was brutal because you're dealing with things that you've never dealt with before in terms of like your body's just shutting down. Like you have no control over it. There's nothing really you can do other than fueling. But yeah, that was a brutal one. Like I remember the guys working the event for concept Two, the, the rower company, I found out after the fact they were having discussions during the event. They were concerned because I was on the first rower. So all 40 wires connecting all the rowers ran under mine and I was sweating so much. It looked like someone took multiple gallons of water and just dumped them. I had a full puddle underneath me, like, I don't know, six, eight feet in every direction. And they were worried that like he's sweating so much that it might short out the entire circuit for all the rowers. Like before the event started, they said they told all the athletes, hey, no peeing during the event, no peeing on the rower. Like if you need to go to the bathroom, you need to get up, leave, go use the toilet and come back. And then like after the event, someone came up to me, they're like, yo, we we said no peeing. Like I'm like, I didn't. I promise you, I did not pee. That's all sweat. It was just drenched going out on the floor. We each got like a, a hand basket. And I was like, any drinks, snacks, anything you want to bring on the floor with you has to fit inside this handbasket. So I walked out. I think I had 11 liters of water, Gatorade, you know, whatever. And as I'm going out, my coach was like shoving more in my back. I'm like, dude, chill. Like, what are you doing? Like, I'm not, I have 11 liters of fluids. Like, I'm not going to drink it. And then I, I think I had over an hour left in the event. And I was out of, out of water and I was like, oh my God, this is not good. you like, I've taken in so much, you know, Snickers bars, gummies, pickle, like all this stuff, just trying to keep my body going. And it was, yeah, it was brutal. The last hour on the row, every stroke, I remember my forearms, my quads, my hamstrings all had the flutter as if like they were about to cramp. 
I'm pulling 22 to 24 strokes per minute for over an hour. And at the end of every stroke, that split second, you're sitting there. I'm like, is it going to cramp? Nope. Okay. Another stroke. I'm like, is it going to cramp? Nope. Okay. A lot of people take breaks and stuff though, don't they? That's, that was the first thing that I noticed when I watched CrossFit Games is that I was expecting people just go hell for leather, whatever event it is, like start to finish as quickly as they can. But sometimes even in between lifting weights or doing um, muscle ups or pull ups or yeah, they, they take breaks and, and just chill for a bit and go, okay, we've got to, got to get right. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like if you load up a 200, 200 pound bench and it's like, all right, do a hundred reps as quickly as possible. Well, if you, if you just go, go as hard as you can try to go on broke, you're going to get a third of the way through and then hit failure. Now you're going even slower. So it's like, all right, pace it from the get go. It's the same as running a marathon. You're not doing your first hundred meters in a full out sprint. You're, you're trying to pace it, pace it along the way. So you can maintain the same output all the way through your, your exertion level will, will go up but you're trying to time that peaked out exertion level for the end of the workout. So you can try to time it perfectly to get through the whole thing. And some people have a better hang of it than others. You know, like if there's a five round workout, it's not often that the person that wins uh, round one is going to win the whole thing. It's usually the person who wins round one misjudged their pacing a little bit and then crash and burn. I just want to, I want to go back a little bit because we, yeah, we fought, we, we, we fired straight into the CrossFit stuff, all the, all the good juicy stuff. I just want to build up to it a little bit more, just looking at your career and weightlifting, because it wasn't like you just were any odd weightlifter. You were, you made it into the US junior world team, didn't you? Yeah. So, you know, I, I mean, especially when you're younger, the, the age divisions play a big, big role because, you know, you can take a 170 pound 15 year old and a 170 pound 25 year old. And the 25-year-old is just at such a huge advantage because mm-hmm. their body is more developed and, and everything that goes along with that. So especially for the younger age brackets of weightlifting, they're very important because I would go, you know, I was a three-time school age national champion. So that's when they really break up. So you're competing against like the 14, 15-year-old division. So you're within, you know, a year, year and a half age difference from all your competitors so there's 14, 15, then 16, 17, and then you bump into the junior nationals, which is 20 and under. So I was three, three times school age national champion. And then I was a junior national champion. But then if I jumped into the open age division, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm training blows with some of the guys, but I'm not competitive in the mm. overall scheme. You know, I'm, I'm hoping to grab a medal or be on the podium, but the guy winning it is so far beyond me because they're grown men and I'm yeah. a child, but yeah, one, one junior nationals, uh, was on the junior world team going over to Romania. I, I had to miss, I think it was my last year of juniors. Don't, don't quote me on this, but after that junior nationals that I won before going to the world championships, I broke my L five vertebrae in two spots Can still competed at the junior junior world championships in Romania did about as well as you could expect to compete with somebody with a broken back. Yeah. I got home, you know, basically put my foot down, refused to, to train until I got x-rays on my back. So I, I didn't know what was wrong, but I knew something was wrong and it was bad. Cause your coach and staff kept pushing you, didn't they? Didn't they like make you take loads of painkillers and stuff? Yeah. They, they were in a tough position because you know, it's the, their job is based on their athletes' performances. You know, like if their athletes don't perform and the board thinks that there's somebody that will get the results done, 
well, then that person's out of a job. So, you know, he was feeling tremendous pressure and keep in mind too, I'm, I'm 18 years old. It's my first time living away from home. And so when, when I'm saying like, Hey, my back hurts, he doesn't know, all right, am I looking for an out? So I don't have to train like right. basically like, am I, am I actually injured or am I hurt? Am I basically just not tough and just trying to get out of training, which, you know, we didn't have that relationship. We didn't know each other well enough where he knew my mentality of like, no, I'm going to fucking train. Like I want to be here. I'll give everything. It's just something's wrong in my body. That's not allowing it. And so, you know, when I approached him, I was told there's a difference between pain and injury. You're a young kid living away from home and you don't really, your authority figure, your adult is saying, keep going. Like, I don't care. I don't believe you or whatever the reasoning is. And so you keep going and then the injury gets worse and worse. And, and finally to the point that it wasn't worth it to me anymore. You know, I was like, I don't care if you kick me out of and strip away my possibility of my Olympic dream. I'm not lifting a fucking weight until I got an x-ray. And so went in, got an x-ray and it was clear as day. They're like, oh yeah, your L5 is broken right here and right here. Like you have two breaks. And I remember there's two specific instances in training where there was a loud pop and then a lot of pain that followed. And uh, I was like, okay, like I, I remember specifically when, what I was doing when, when my vertebrae let go. So, you know, that, that was a long, long process. I was four months in a torso brace. Do you operate on it or is it just something that you have to let heal? Yeah. So, so we, we tried fixing it without surgery. And so I was in a full torso brace, like from nipple to hip, it was miserable. You know, it's just uncomfortable 24 hours a day. Can't lift. I'm sitting there in this torso brace, having to watch my friends and my competitors perform, make the Pan Am team, make these different teams, hit PRs, break national records. And I'm sitting on the sidelines, just watching and going like, there's nothing I can fucking do. And then at the end of the four months, went in, got re x-rayed and nothing had healed. And so then, then I'm looking at like, not only did I just have the lowest four months of my life, it was for nothing. Now I have to go get surgery. And, you know, you're talking to surgeons and every single one of them is telling you like, Hey, yeah, we'll do the surgery. We'll make you feel good. But it's a double whammy. One, you'll never be able to work out again. Like the most you'll ever do is a light jog. And two, if you get the surgery in 10 years, we have to go in and redo the surgery for the next vertebrae up. Like if we get fusion, the next vertebrae up and the next, next disc is having to make up for all that range of motion. So now it's going to wear out quicker. So you got 10 years and then you have to do the next one up. And then now it's making, now the next vertebrae is making up for two vertebrae's worth of motion. So in eight years, you have to do the next one. And so not only was I being told you'll never work out again, your Olympic dream is squashed. But now you're basically in for a lifetime of surgeries. Like they're 10 year separation between them, but your physical activity is done. And so I, I happened to meet a surgeon that had just signed on with the Olympic Association. He said, he was like, I have an experimental surgery that I can do on you. And I give it a 50, 50 chance of working. He's like, I did the surgery on a 13 year old and it was a guaranteed fix. I did the surgery on a 24 year old and it was a guaranteed failure. So you're 19 you're right in the middle. It might work. It might not. But if it works, you can go back, go back to your sport. You don't have a life like you're not going to have to get another surgery again. And so, you know, anyone that was offering me even a hope of carrying on, I was doing it. So went out, 
got the surgery and then it was basically six, six months of, you know, dealing with the recovery of the surgery was the easy part, you know, dealing, I was back in a torso brace again for a couple months. Um, you know, I wasn't able to live independently, you know, I couldn't sit up out of bed. Um, you know, I couldn't carry a book bag while I was at college, you know, these things that you're dealing with surgery mm. and it's very painful. You're very uncomfortable and it's downright depressing. I was fine dealing with that stuff. The tough part was not knowing if the surgery worked or not for a long, long time, like probably six months where we didn't know if the surgery was taking because basically what they did, they went in and rebroke the bones. So I have two plates and six screws in my back that was put in to hold it together, basically like a cast. But then the hope was that the bones regrew back together. Mm. So they told me like, Hey, if this surgery takes and the hardware is giving you a hard time, we can go in and remove the hardware. But if it doesn't hurt, there's no point doing that invasive surgery all over again. Thankfully, you know, time came, got x-rays, the bones had healed. And I got, I got the all clear to start working back into training. But, you know, I went from one of the top ranked junior lifters in the country to going back to training and I was right back onto that fucking broomstick. Oh no. <laughs> like going through the list to like retrain that muscle memory and like retrain that technique. And then like, I remember doing full weightlifting sessions with an empty barbell and I'm like, I'm supposed to be one of the top ranked in the country. And here I am like lifting a 45 pound barbell over and over and over basically starting from ground zero. If that doesn't get you set up for life, but you know, it like, once again, like once you put a little bit of time between where I am now and that, you know, I'm so thankful that happened because now anytime I'm faced with an obstacle, I look at it of like, you know, whether it's an injury or personal life obstacle, whatever it is, I look at how hopeless I was when I was 18, 19 years old, living away from home, going through this huge, big surgery, not knowing if I can ever return to the sport that I love. And I see, I'm like, oh, I overcame that. I was told I'll never jog again. And now I'm doing everything that I'm doing. I'm like, oh, pff, go ahead, throw something at me, throw, throw a life problem, throw an obstacle at me. I'll, I'll overcome it. I don't know how, I don't know how long it will take, but I know I'll get through it. How did you go from that point where you're back doing weightlifting, you're back from your surgery, and then you, you go into CrossFit? So, I mean, there, there's a couple of different factors that came in. You know, one, you know, coming back from the surgery and, and I had felt, when I, when I got injured, I had felt very betrayed by a lot of the people around me, people that I, I thought were friends, I thought were on my team. Um, as soon as I'm basically used goods or damaged goods, um, I saw how many people took a step back and kind mm -hmm. of put some distance. And I was like, oh, okay, you, you, were, you were only around me because you thought I was doing well. And so, you know, I, I heard, heard it enough times of, you know, oh, his career's over, his, he's never going to come back, all that type of stuff. And, and so when I came back, I, I started training off resentment. I started training with a big, big fuck you mentality. I was no longer training for myself or because I loved it. I was training to prove other people wrong. I wanted to show them, oh, you were wrong for counting me out. You were wrong for treating me the way you did, which was, it's served its purpose. You know, resentment is, is a great motivation. It's a great tool. It's a great fuel for training, but it's a hot burning fuel. And if you train off it for too long, you're going to get burnt out. And that's exactly what happened. A year to the day from my surgery, I hit a bunch of personal records. You know, I made my, made my comeback. I was better than I was before. 
And then, you know, I moved up a weight class, started seeing a lot more benefit. And I just remember I hit a big milestone that I'd been chasing for a long time. And I remember walking off the platform after the competition and I was like, I'm done. Like, I don't look forward to training anymore. I don't look forward to these things anymore. Cause I was just, I was doing it for the wrong reasons. I lost the love of the sport. I just got burnt out. And so, you know, retired from weightlifting, moved back home because all the Olympic association funding for school got canceled. So it was either I stayed at the school I was at and went into debt to get my college degree, or I can move home and attend uh, University of Vermont for free. And so I moved home, focused on school, treated school like I do any anything else of like moderation is not a, it's not in my blood. And so I went all in and then I just typical college student. I wasn't happy. I was eating for entertainment. Uh, I went from training twice a day, every day since I was 12 to nothing at all. So adding in junk food, sitting stagnant at a desk all day and now not working out at all. Uh, I just started gaining weight. And so it was either, all right, I need to start working out or clean up my diet. And I was like, there's no way I'm cleaning up my diet. I like, I like eating what I'm eating. And so it's known in the Olympic Olympic weightlifting community that if you need a place to train, you go to any CrossFit gym and they, and they welcome you in because they have all the equipment that you need. So that's what I did. I started going into a, into a CrossFit gym in town here, Champlain Valley CrossFit and uh, told them straight up like, Hey, I have no interest in doing CrossFit. I'm, I just want to use your bars and bumpers. Do you mind if I sit in the back corner when the gym's open and I'll just do my weightlifting? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. And started getting pulled into workouts every once in a while. Somebody would be like, Hey, this workout, it's 30 clean and jerks for time. There's no CrossFit. It's just clean and jerks. You'll be great at it. And I would do that. And, you know, just a little more often I started doing more and more CrossFit style workouts. And then the owner of that gym, Jay Jenny, he, he wanted me to sign up for his competition. And he's like, Hey, I think you have a lot of potential in the sport. I want you to do this competition. So he signed me up, but the deal was if I won any money, I had to buy a pair of CrossFit shoes. So I said, okay, like no skin off my back. You're the one paying the money. And so I did it and I won. I made some pocket money as a broke college student. I looked at it as like, this is my version of a part-time job while I'm in college. Uh, so I put gas in my car, go out to the movies, you know, go to dinner, whatever it was. And then it just slowly started building over time. You know, the competitions got a little bit, little bit bigger, a little bit uh, more popularity, more competitors were showing up. Prize money was a bit bigger. So I started putting in a little bit more effort to make sure I was a little bit more prepared before I knew it. The job fair at college for all the seniors is coming to campus. And, and I didn't go to the job fair because I was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to take a whack at this CrossFit thing. Like the desk job will always be there. You know, like my first year competing, I worked at an aerospace company as a mechanical engineer and as sitting in a cubicle and it was a great cubicle, great carpet, great ceiling, shitty coffee. And I was oh. just miserable. I had to wear, I had to wear slacks and a belt button down shirt with a tie and have an ID badge. And I just went like, is this my life? Is this my life for the next 40 years? Like there has to be something better than this for me. And so that's where I was like, all right, I'm going to pursue this CrossFit thing. The desk job, those opportunities will always be there but I'm going to, I'm going to take a whack at this. Cause if I don't, I'm going to hate myself for it when I'm 40, 50 years old. So I just went all in, I had no overhead, I had no responsibilities. And so I was like, all right, if I, if I chase this dream and I fail, who cares? I'm not, I'm not hurting anyone. It's not affecting anyone, but me. And I'm okay with those consequences. You know, like 
I looked at it like the worst that happens is I'm, I'm hard up and I have to sleep in my car. All right. I've slept in my car before. Luckily, you know, it never came to that. And I have a support system around me that I don't think would allow that to happen. But I figured if, if that's the worst case scenario, who cares? Let's, let's take a run at this thing. <laughs> Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How long was it until, like, what was the timeline between you started CrossFit until 2014 when you came second from from when i first started any form of crossfit to competing at the games was about 18 months shit that is quick yeah like i i i didn't i didn't spend much time training for the sake of training um i got into competing pretty quickly like at a lower level you know local competitions where it's some somebody like at the time a big competition would have five thousand dollar prize and for me i'm like dude five grand will last me a year, you know, like that's uh living lush. I, I came in, I came into the sport because of my weightlifting background. I kind of hit the ground running, you know, where most guys train years in CrossFit at hopes of getting a 300 pound snatch or a 350, 365 clean and jerk. Whereas I came in day one with those, with those tools in my back pocket, but it was the cardio side of things that well, that was tough for me, but luck- luckily that builds up. You're able to build a aerobic base a, a lot quicker than you can a strength base. So I, I came in just kind of, I hit the ground running um, where I had this great technique and foundation to start building off of. But then even just my Olympic with background, knowing how to use my body in different ways of, you know, know, knowing how to move weight with your upper body without using your upper body by using your legs and using your hips. And it translates over to the gymnastics movements, translates over to everything of knowing how to use your hips to generate the energy instead of burning out your shoulders or something. Mm. So, you know, I, I give a big nod of my hat in, in my early years, especially to, to having that Olympic weightlifting background, that technique to fall back on. It's quite interesting how you've got that viewpoint because after 2015 and you had to kind of unpick your entire performance because CrossFit's got so many different elements to it. Like there's, for example, there's sprinting. You went back and joined your high school track team, didn't you? Yeah, after the 15, 15 games, you know, there was uh, two sprint events back to back and there were half points each. So the two events equaled like one full event worth of points. I, I came last or clo- as close to last place on both of them as I could, you know, I kind of shrugged my shoulders like, ah, you know, I'm just not a good sprinter. I, you know, I'm not built for it, whatever it is. And it was my weightlifting coach that messaged me after the games and was like, Hey, like, I know you, like, I know you so well that most people are congratulating you for getting on the podium, but I know you're miserable right now. You're terrible at sprinting. Please keep in mind that I'm a track coach. My weightlifting coach that I started with when I was 11, 12 years old and carried on through for, you know, I was daily with him for probably six or seven years. By trade, he's a track coach. He he started coaching Olympic weightlifting to supplement for his 
track athletes. And so I was like, okay, teach me how to sprint. So early on, it was just he and I, or he, myself, and one other student. But then when the track season started for the school, he's like, hey, you don't have access to me one-on-one, but you're more than welcome to keep showing up to the middle school track practices. And I was like, I'll do whatever I got to do. So, you know, we show up day one and there, you know, there's probably a hundred, 150 kids all in gymnasium and then coat. And everyone sees me, I'm an unfamiliar face and I'm clearly an adult. <laughs> You've got a beard. <laughs> yeah. Who is this guy? And so I'm, I'm getting some looks and everyone just assumed I must've been a coach or an assistant coach or someone volunteering. And then when, when coach uh, gave the, all right, practice starting, everyone getting three lines, we're going through our warm up drills. And then like, I got in the back of one of the lines and then I got some really strange looks, but you know, it was something that I wanted to pursue. I wanted to get better at, and I didn't care. I just put the ego aside. If you're trying to learn a new craft, there's no space for pride. There's no space for ego. I think I would show up to two track practices per week for the whole season. And then 2016 season comes and there was a suicide sprint that got programmed. And, you know, all the announcers like, oh, you know, this is where Fraser finishes middle of the pack. And, you know, he had has a poor event. But I think at that point in the competition, I had I had the victory just about locked up as close as close to as you could. It was a 50 point event for the suicide sprint. And, you know, everyone's kind of, ah, you know, Fraser this is where he does does a poor finish because he did bad at it last year. So he's going to do poorly at it this year. And I said, no, no, no. When, when other people are bad at something last year, they're going to be bad at it this year. I was like, I never blame myself for doing poorly on an event the first time I do it. Once I do poorly on it twice, now it's my fault. Now, like I, I knew I wasn't good at it. I knew how to prepare for it and I chose not to, but that's not me. Because I was bad at it last year, you should watch out. I'm going to put in the effort to not repeat the same mistake twice. And so I, that in 2016, I, I won my heat someone in the first heat beat me. So I got second place in the event overall, but it was a 50 point event and the event, the scoring, I was so far ahead in points. It didn't really matter. But looking back over my career, that, that event right there was one of my proudest moments through my entire career. I worked so, so fucking hard on that because I had done so poorly. And then I saw the results mm. of that effort that I put in. I saw the results of putting my ego aside, my pride aside, sprinting against these middle school kids and I saw the results for it and I was like, okay, cool. Like it's, it's good to, to be a student again, you know, uh, knowing not only what I'm good at, but what I'm poor at and then having the resources to, to fix that problem. It's invaluable. You mentioned how you, yeah, yeah. The first time you do something, um, it's not your fault if you do bad then, but the second time it's your fault. But looking at swimming was one, one area where, you had to improve as well because you almost drowned in one event, didn't you? Oh, I, I mean, the, the, I mean, the, the, there's a laundry list of shit that I had to improve on. <laughs> yeah, and sw- swimming was one of those ones that I didn't realize I was bad at it. Finished middle of the pack in my first year, and then second year swimming event came up, and I thought I was training properly, and then poor event finish again, and I was like, oh, okay, I wasn't training properly. You know, the 2015 season, I was just cutting corners. I was just a, a lazy competitor um, or a lazy trainer. And then going into 2016, it was like, okay, I'm going to seek out the advice of a professional. I'm going to train the things that I don't want to train so that I can have that moment in the spotlight. And, you know, just kept trying to progress. And like the, the swim event, that was a situation that I put myself in willingly because it was a one and a half mile run 
uh, I think it was about an 800 meter swim and then a one and a half mile run. The gentleman that was in first place on the run, I was in second place right on his heels. And I knew he was a very, very weak swimmer, but he was a tremendous runner. So the whole first mile and a half, I'm, he and I are in first and second place and I'm ducked in right, right on his heels. I'm hyping him up. Um, I'm talking to him like, Hey man, come on, like, let's push the pace. Let's, let's lose this whole group. And so I basically talked him into pushing the pace way faster than he should have way faster than I should have. But knowing that when we hit the water, I'm going to struggle, but he's going to fail. And and being able to make decisions like that when you're absolutely exhausted or when you're really pushing yourself to the limit you, you train for that as well don't you you, you do like mental yeah. tests when you're at exhaustion levels. yeah you know you hear you hear it all the time of like people in the middle of an event especially when they have to keep track of their reps or you know they have to transition from movement to movement and they just start doing the wrong thing and people be like dude what were you doing out on the field there like you supposed to start doing deadlifts again and you started doing hang power cleans like How'd you make that? They're like, oh, you know, I was just so fatigued. I was so tired. My heart rate was so high. I didn't know what I was doing. I couldn't keep track of anything. And I saw that that was a problem. And it's such an easily avoidable mistake because not only are you getting no reps, but you're costing yourself more energy. You're putting yourself in a more of a deficit. And so I started integrating that into my training of actively problem solving and actively having to, to find solutions while my heart rate's high. So the easy example is like when, when I'm running, either I break my split times down to per hundred meter. So I'm able to stay more up to date on if I'm ahead of pace, below pace, I, I, I have more instant feedback. So I'm seeing mm. feedback every 20 seconds versus every minute and a half. So I can resolve a problem before I'm too far invested into it. But then if, if you're running 23 seconds per hundred meter, it's a very slow pace, but now thinking, all right, like first one, 23 seconds. All right, what, what is my time when it comes to the second one? All right, 46 seconds. Now what's my next time? And so you're just doing these math problems as you're going, calculating out your times, and then you start factoring in, all right, I'm second fast, I'm a second slow. So if I want to buy back that second over the next 200 meters, where do I need to finish this next one? But then if I'm just doing a long steady state run, well, I'm doing times tables. You know, what's one times one, two times two, three times three. At first, they're easy, but once you start getting up to 16 times 16 and 17 times 17 and, and your heart rate's up at 180, it's taking you quite a while to figure, to figure this problem out. But, yeah. but you're actively actively thinking and keeping your mind calm as your heart is just racing. Your respiratory rate is through the roof, but you're able to stay calm, think through a situation. And so that really, really helped out in my in my career of your, your heart rate spiked up to you know, 190, 200 plus, but you're still able to carry a conversation with your ref. You're able to open up a line of communication. So if you get a no rep, you're not getting frazzled and panicked. You're then able to look at your rep. What did I get a no rep for? So I can correct it on the next one. You know, so little things like that, that there's probably not one moment that made that whole thing worthwhile. But if you have enough little mistakes that are avoided, it adds up, you know, especially over a weekend where there's 15 events if each event has a couple hundred reps in it and you're able to avoid little mistakes here and there, that six points because of one placement that you avoided over 15 events, well, shit, now you're looking at like 10 places on the leaderboard with a 60 point swing. So who knows if it was ever that drastic, but it was just, it was so helpful with staying calm during events, being able to think critically during an event. And then you're getting less frazzled from 
your judge yelling at you that like, hey, no good, you know? Yeah. I don't think my heart rate would need to be at 180 to find 16 times 16 <laughs> difficult. <laughs> to, um, but you were, you, were, you were looking for advantages everywhere, including like the DJ. Your coach would talk to the DJ to get them on side before you went out for an event as well. Oh, uh, no, that wasn't my coach. That was, that was my fiance, Sammy. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, your fiance was doing that. Yeah, that, that happened a couple of times. I just got goosebumps thinking about it. Did you know it was happening or did, did, did she, was she just doing it? I, I pieced it together pretty quickly the first time. So the first time it happened was at the 2016 games. And the way the stadium was set up is all the athletes came through a tunnel, but the tunnel was at the top of the stadium. So you had to run down, you know, three, four flights of stairs to get to the competition floor. And you have fans on both sides. And so for the final event, the top 10 competitors were, were all in the tunnel and there's, there's fans in the tunnel on either side. They're held back by barricades, but they're there. And so, you know, you're standing in line with all your competitors and getting called out one at a time. It's the last event. So they're hyping, hyping you up before you come out. And so, you know, they're given your credentials, your resume, and then like your current place, all these things. And then you run down these stairs and you got fans on either side, just going nuts. So I'm in first place going into the last event. So I'm the last person to get called out. The ninth guy gets called out. And then now I'm standing in the tunnel by myself, fans on both sides, fans in front of me. And then they start, oh man, I'm getting choked up talking about. They start going through my resume of, and now finally, you know, your two time second place finisher, event winner, blah, blah, blah. Your current leader, Matt Fraser. And they started playing a song, but they started playing the song while still in the tunnel. And it was, it was a song that I was clearly like, Sammy went and talked to the DJ and got this song for my walkout song. It was, it was like Sammy and I's song. And I just started crying, just pouring tears. And so I just took the sunglasses off, off my head, put them on my, put them on my face so that people couldn't see that I was crying. I kept a straight face, but my eyes are just fountains. And it was in that moment that like, I already had the competition won and I immediately went like, so I was just going to mail in the last workout, just do the minimal work requirement, seal up my victory and go. But then that song came on. And, and I remember thinking like, oh, okay, I'm going to go hard on this. Like I'm going to send it. Same thing happened a couple of years in a row. But so every season I have a theme song that every day on the way to the gym, I put the song on and I envision the CrossFit games, the final event, walking out onto the floor all this pressure on me. How am I going to overcome this pressure? How am I going to be victorious? The associations with these songs is so fucking strong that like when they come on still today, I get amped up. I'm ready to fucking go. I'm like, let's send it. And so it was uh, my second to last year competing. Same thing. Last one in the tunnel, 2019, there was actually a possibility in the last workout that, that I could get overtaken. And the workout was a phenomenal workout for the guy in second place. And it was an okay workout for me. I'm the last one in the tunnel. The song comes on and it was exactly what I pictured. Uh, it was, we will rock you by queen. And sure enough, the whole year I pictured this is my walkout song for my final event. The whole stadium starts fucking stomping and clapping. And sure enough, that's what happened. You know, the song comes on, I'm in the tunnel. It's exactly what I've been picturing the whole fucking year. And the whole stadium, I hear the fucking boom, boom, clap, boom, boom, clap. And as they finally announced my name, I ran out on the floor. And I remember like audibly thinking like, everyone's fucked. I'm not losing. I don't care how good you are at this workout. I don't care how much pain it causes me. 
I'm fucking winning this workout and there's nothing any of you can do about it. And so, you know, like having that walkout song that like I've been actively envisioning this exact scenario, like this whole season comes down to this last workout and then walking out and there's 10,000 people fucking stomping their feet and clap with their hands. It, there, there's not much you can do with that type of that type of uh, emotion pushing behind you. That is epic. Did any <laughs> of your other competitors know that this was this was happening? I don't know if anyone like actively knew those things, but like every year, I mean, every year there was a theme. Like I had a theme song mm. that on the way to the gym, I knew at or at this stoplight, I put that song on and I start getting myself into this this mode and it's just that association that you build so for some it's like putting on their shoes you know like for me like for weightlifting it's putting on my weightlifting shoes that association is so strong and so you know i've done that with the outfits i wear you know like i never put any any ounce of care into the outfits you know i wore the same thing training all the time um so it was one less decision to make but when i put on that outfit i'm like this is my work outfit it's the same as a business guy putting on a suit you know, the music that was playing, the drink that I'm drinking, like all those things build that association that when I start doing it, my body knows, all right, it's fucking game time. Because people look at you, especially after five championship wins at the CrossFit Games, World's Fittest Man, five years in a row, think you're a picture of focus and calm and know your shit, know what you're doing. To some extent, that's bang on, but you would also be a nervous wreck before every event though, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the people that are close to me know early on, like when, when I start competing, like if there's a new competitor on the scene and we were like in the corrals next to each other, basically before every event, most events, nine out of 10 events, uh, dry heaving, you know, 10 minutes before, like we get corralled and we're walking out and then you're put into a holding area in these corrals, like racehorses, basically. And I'd always walk back to the corral, say a little prayer to myself. And then I'd have a couple minutes of dry heaves where I'm just like, oh, my stomach's trying to come up. And anyone that had been competing with me for years, they see it and they go, ah, he's at it again. You know, they're used to it. But then like, if there's a rookie there, I'm getting some looks. They're like, yo, if you're that this scared, like <laughs> what, what's about to happen to me? <laughs> That's exactly right. That's what people will be thinking. They're like, this guy's done that, been here before and he's dry heaving. Fuck, this is going to be bad. And my buddy that, he had my coaches, my coaches band every year at the games. By the end of my career, he was like, oh, I get nervous when I don't see you throw up. He's like, if you're acting calm, cool, collecting the warm-up area, he's like, I'm kind of getting panicked. And then I see you sprint over to a trash can and just let her rip. And he goes, oh, okay, good. Like, he's ready to go. He's got this. So, you know, it's uh, one of those things that when, when you're looking at it from, from an outside view, it, it looks pretty bad. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm like anyone else, like, there's insecurities there that that are just terrifying and it was never that i was scared of failing like failure is inevitable it's going to happen mistakes are going to happen you're not going to get the results you want there's nothing you can do about that my biggest fear was wasting my potential my biggest fear walking out on the floor was that i would have a momentary lapse in judgment and not give everything i have and then have to live with that regret for the rest of my life. Going out, like my, my first year winning the world championships, I lost 14 out of 15 of the events. I had one event win the whole weekend. I lost 14 out of 15 events. That's perfectly fine. 
because I gave it my all on every single one of those. And I was proud of the effort. I was proud of my execution, everything. What I was scared shitless of and kept me up at night is what if I have a shift in my mental state where I, for some reason, think it's a good idea to let off the throttle and just coast her in? Because then, then I'm left with this mm. what if for the rest of my life of finishing my sports career, looking back and going, what if I tried harder? What if my training was more consistent? What if my diet was better? What if my sleep schedule was better? What if I had a better support team? And that was my biggest fear of if I did fail, having those what ifs. And so I just made sure like to never, ever, ever have a what if when it came to my competition career. And when it came to training as well, right? Because like you talk about training scared as in like you're leaving no stone unturned. You're always making sure that you're not complacent when you're training. To give someone an idea... You don't just train for 12 weeks leading into a CrossFit Games, do you? No. So how long's the season and then what does your day look like? So the season starts in February. So the Open, the online competition, um, and it changes format all the time. But for a large majority of my career, the Open was five weeks long. And so they release one workout Thursday and then you have until Monday to do the workout post your score, and then you have to videotape it. So if they want proof that you actually completed that score, they can check. So that's five workouts over five weeks, starts in February. And then the world championships, the final stage isn't until early August. It's one thing to know like, okay, I can start training at this time and be at tip top shape for August. It's not this huge, huge window. But if you go into the first stage of competition, not prepared and everyone else peaked for that first stage and they kick you, they beat you and you don't rank high enough after stage one, you don't get to carry on. So you need to be at a good enough fitness level and ready to compete in February to qualify for the next stage. And then from that stage, now it's, you need to be even better. So from the open, they take the top 40 you usually. So the numbers change every year, but it's usually from the open, they take the top 40 from every region. And I think at one point there are 17 regions around the world. And then you go to regionals and then from regionals, they take the top three to five people to the games. And so it's like, yeah, I could start training in June, like intense training in June to be ready for August, but you can't just start in June. You can't walk into stage one completely unprepared because the other people are going to be prepared. So, I mean, you're going full throttle from February till August, you know, two to three training sessions per day, six days a week. You have to hit every fucking modality there is. You need to train for the three hour long event. You need to train for the five second event. You need to train for the one rep max, the hundred rep max. You need to be proficient at gymnastics movements, strongman, Olympic weightlifting, powerlifting, everything. There's no rule or limitation on what they can throw at you. And so you need to be prepared and be ready to adapt for anything and everything. So yeah, you know, it kept, it kept training interesting because you never know what you're training for. Yeah. You're just trying to be the best. What sort of, I know you touched on the early state, the, the money from the early stages of your career when you were a uni student, but like what, what sort of money would you be making? Would someone be making for winning the CrossFit games and uh, what, what kind of, I mean, it's a very rude question to say, what, what are you on? But like, what, you, what, what kind of money were you making as far as in, incentives? I mean, I mean, it's a great question. You know, I, I think it's something that it has a stigma around it of people talking about income. It has this negative stigma and some people like to be private about it. But uh, so prize money for the games, it, it adjusts a little bit every year, but it, it's usually right around that $300,000 mark. 
And then there's incentives for individual workouts. So every event win that you get, it's another $3,000 bonus. So, I mean, you, you can finish off the games with a good check, but with CrossFit, you know, the, the amount of people that can survive, make a living just off their competition career and prize money is few and far between. So it's, there, there's a hev- heavily brand driven for sponsorships. That's how most, most athletes are able to afford doing it as a full-time job is work, working with brands and the brands are giving the support to the athlete. I mean, it depends. Depends how you structure contracts. It depends who your agent is, who you are, what type of athlete you are. If you're more of a social media influencer, or if you're actually a game time person that's actually winning, depends what what you want. You know how you want to structure the contract. If you want to push for more a higher annual salary and no incentives, or if you're in a situation where you can afford to gamble on yourself and be like, hey, don't pay me an annual salary, but I want big incentives if I win these competitions. So for myself, I was early on in my career, I was like guaranteed money, like mm. hit me, hit me with it. I want that security. But then by the end of my career, it shifted where I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable enough. I can live comfortably. Like I don't require much day to day, but I wanted to gamble on myself. I wanted a really big incentive to, to perform at the game. So a lot of my contracts, my annual salary, I'm sure some athletes looked at it and kind of laughed, but then my incentive for winning the big competitions was, uh, was big. What What are you doing now that you, you know you've you've retired from CrossFit? What are you are you you're training other athletes? Or? Yeah, so we we launched uh, HWPO training. So that's um, you know we have a couple different fitness tracks that people can follow, and it's basically I'm taking everything I've I've experienced and learned over over my whole competitive career, and then scaling it to the skill level or or what people desire for like their time constraints or equipment restraints. So, you know, that's, that's the biggest, I, I don't want to say time suck, but the most demanding thing in my day now, mm. but then, uh, you know, obviously wrote the book, doing HWPO training. I'm coaching a couple athletes one-on-one. So, you know, they come here every day and I'm coaching them the way I've always wanted to be coached. But then on top of that, you know, dabbling with some, some real estate stuff. So, you know, picked up a couple of income properties over the last year, working on a movie. A movie? What is it about you? Yeah. That's awesome. Are you in it? Are you starring as you? Or what's what's, what's Why well, I hope I hope I am. <laughs> <laughs> so you you're going to be acting? No, no, I mean it's it's all just about my competition career. Ah, nice. So poker's in a lot of different fires and uh just trying to keep up with it. But uh and then and then last thing on top of it was we we launched a supplement company, Podium. That one was the first one where I went from being the athlete that's, you know, on the receiving end of a sponsorship to now being the sponsor and providing that for an athlete. But it's just one of those things that, you know, for the last couple of years in my competitive career, I didn't have a supplement sponsor because I just couldn't find a brand that I aligned with perfectly. I wanted to make sure that if I put my name on something that I really, really love it and agree mm-hmm. with it and believe in it. And so I went the last couple of years of my career without a, without a supplement sponsor. And so when I finally got done, I was like, okay, I have the time to dedicate towards this now. Fuck it. I'll make the sponsor that that I want to align with. So I have some great partners that I get to work with. It's a ton of fun, especially being on the other side of other side of the fence and being on the development side of it. But yeah, you know, all, all the projects I figured I would start some of them and some would go great and some would fail. And, you know, I would just put more time and attention to the ones that are going well and they all went well. And I was like, Oh shit. You know, I only have so many hours in a day. So, uh, but yeah, no, it's been great. 
busy, busy, busy. Well, your book, Hard Work Pays Off, is, I've read it. It's great. It's uh, it's not only the story about you, it's also, and, and how you became the world's fittest man for five years in mm-hmm. a row. It's also got loads of amazing like, training tips, plans, bit of nutrition in there as well that, to help anyone reach their potential, right? Yeah, you know, I, I hope that people can can read it. And and even if you're not a CrossFitter, you know, there, there's, I hope there's, tidbits of information or you know pieces from life experiences that you can take and apply it to a different situation you know i applied it to training you can apply it to your family life your home life your work life whatever it is but yeah you know it's not it's not just about competing you know there's even pages on pages of recipes from from my fiance sammy you know she she's a legend isn't she i saw her in a documentary as well she's yeah she's great you've done well there fucking stud but yeah, you know, like she, she runs feeding the Frasers. People are always curious on, you know, what, what are you eating? What are you using to fuel your body? And so like, all right, people ask for it. People want it here. Like, and so we put a bunch of recipes in the book, a bunch of workouts that I've hit in the past, a bunch of my mental state, how I got into the sport, what I did prior to like everything. And I, I hope that, you know, CrossFitters, obviously there's endless information in there mm. that you can take and apply to whatever you're trying to complete but even non-crossfitters i hope that they can read it and take something that you know i use as motivation or as a you know a mental driver in my training and apply it to whatever whatever you're working on you know it's doesn't matter the field you're working on there's so many parallels you know even now i'm taking everything that i learned during my competition career and applying it to my business career yeah having a strong strong mindset and a good work ethic doesn't matter what you apply it to it's all the same there's so many parallels between it all. Just make sure there's a bucket for you before every business meeting, Matt. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I haven't had the dry heats for any uh, any any business negotiations yet, I know. But like who knows? We'll we'll see. All right, Matt. Well, thank you so much for your time, mate. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. No worries. And thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to share this on social media. And if you ever have any guests that you'd like me to interview, just chuck me a message on Twitter or Instagram.